All right, I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles as we begin. This won't be necessarily our, our text for the whole um, lesson this morning, but I'd like to begin by looking at the book of Colossians, starting in chapter 2. And I have been tasked with a topic by Pastor Dave of talking about uh, race and racism and justice. That is a key question um, in our culture today. I probably don't have to tell you guys that. Uh, how much that is talked about, discussed, uh, how explosive that topic can be in our culture. And so we want to examine that from the standpoint of a biblical worldview. So I'd like to start, though, by looking at Colossians chapter 2 in verse 3. Colossians 2 and verse 3, Paul writes that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. This idea of worldview that we're discussing this week, it's not just sort of like a helpful thing that maybe you have the option to try to develop a worldview. Everyone has one. You either have a good one or a bad one. And the fact is, it's not just something that you sort of naturally create with no pressure from the outside. There are people out there who want to delude you with plausible arguments, things that sound good, things that are even persuasive, but it's deceptive. There's lies, there's errors, there's a story being told that's not the true story. Paul says that it's in Christ that are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As Tanner said so well last night, God's word reflects the nature of God and God is true. And God has revealed his truth to us primarily in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the truth. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What we need to know, what we need to believe is centered in Christ. And he says, don't be deluded with plausible arguments. Look down at verse 8 in the same chapter. Colossians 2 verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Simply put, there are voices in the world that are competing for your heart, competing for your mind. So for Christians, the crucial, crucial question is always, whose voice are we going to listen to? Whose voice is going to get traction in our hearts and minds? This goes all the way back to the garden. Will we listen to God's voice? God's law, God's word, or will we listen to another voice that would question, did God really say? Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul urges us, he says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't let those questions, those stories, those attitudes shape you. He says, rather, we're to be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that by testing, we can discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that's part of the goal of this whole weekend is that you guys would not be conformed to the thinking of the world, that you would not be deluded by plausible arguments, that you wouldn't be taken captive by these empty philosophies, rather that you'd focus on Christ, the wisdom and knowledge of God, that your, your heart and mind would be conformed to the truth of God. See, it matters that we think biblically. It matters that our actions are guided by Scripture. It matters that our, even our feelings and emotions be grounded in the truth. We need to know God's mind on the pressing issues and matters of life. And his mind is revealed to us in Scriptures. Again, Tanner laid out this beautiful vision of the absolute authority of God's word last night. It is authoritative. I love what Psalm 138.2 says. You have exalted above all things your name and your word. Above all things. God's word exalted above all things. There's no higher authority than the word of Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. His word is exalted above philosophy. His word is, is exalted above scientific consensus. His word is exalted above modern psychology, above modern governments. It's not sociologists that tell us what's true. It's not even you and me that are the authority on what is true. It is God and his word. Not only is God's word perfectly authoritative, it's also perfectly sufficient. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. 
God's word is sufficient. It's enough. We have what we need in God's word. It can tell us what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with society, even what's wrong with the human heart. God's word is also sufficient to tell us what is the solution for what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with our society, what's wrong with the human heart. So the first and foremost question in any situation for us, if we're going to have this Christian biblical worldview, the first question is always, what does God say? What does God say? That's the question that we need to ask when we're dealing with issues of race, racism, questions about justice. How is justice defined? How is it brought about? And again, I probably don't have to tell you how this topic has dominated our cultural conversation over the last number of years. Sadly, it's proven to be a wedge, not only in the culture, but even in the church. And what has shaped many people's view on race, on racism, on justice, is actually not the Bible. What has shaped many people's view on these things is a dangerous and worldly philosophy. Something that I think Paul wants to warn us about. So it'd be way more fun to take one passage of scripture and sort of exposit that. But because we're sort of outside of Sunday morning, we're in a unique setting, I'd like to just share a little bit of context, even cultural context, for what this worldly philosophy is. And some of you guys can probably name it. Some of you have maybe studied it. But even if you don't know it by name, even if you haven't studied the history, we've all seen the fingerprints of this dangerous worldly philosophy. I'd like to start off just by giving a brief overview of something called critical theory and and one of its uh, subsets, critical race theory. Let me give you a bit of history and definition of critical theory. Critical theory is a school of thought that was developed in what's known as the Frankfurt School. It's a group of thinkers uh, in between the, the First and Second World War, the 1930s. And this group of thinkers, as they got together, as they're, they're building a new philosophy, a new outlook on life, they drew heavily from the philosophies of Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud. Maybe you guys know those names, among others. There's others as well. But these two influences um, really fed into the thinking of the Frankfurt School. Modern critical theory relies not only on those initial thoughts, but also on uh, men like Antonio Gramsci, who's an Italian Marxist philosopher. It relies on the works of men like Jürgen Habermas, who's a German philosopher and sociologist. So the roots for critical theory is not scripture. The, root, the roots for critical theory is found in Marxist and postmodern philosophy. That's where it comes from. And the aim of critical theory is to analyze and critique society and culture. That's why it's critical, right? It's critiquing, it's analyzing. But it's to analyze and critique society and culture with a specific aim, to expose and challenge power structures. That's really what's at the heart of it. To try to expose, to to discern where are these power structures, and then to challenge them, to undermine them, to subvert them, to turn them upside down. That's the aim and goal of critical theory. Some of you are familiar probably with Karl Marx, the way that he divided up um, the haves and the have-nots in the economic realm, right? So you have the bourgeois and the proletariat, and he pits these classes against each other. That's Marxism. So if you take that Marxist idea of this class identity, the haves and the have-nots, those with power, those without it, if you export that idea out of the economic realm, that's where Marx did most of his work, and you apply that same, stru- that same structure to other areas of life, if you use those ideas of group identity, those ideas of a power imbalance as a lens to look through, as a worldview, that's critical theory. And you can apply that to all different areas of life. These original ideas of critical theory have given birth to a whole host of different sub-disciplines. All sorts of different things. You'll find it in gender studies. Even things, I don't know if you guys have this at Emporia State, but things like fat studies. I mean, there's all sorts of these different little small disciplines that have branched off of critical theory. And one of them is critical race theory. Critical race theory specifically came about in the mid to late 80s. So it's younger than me. It's an offshoot of critical legal studies. So it's pioneered by people like Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, Carlos Delgado. Maybe you've, any of you guys heard any of those names? A couple of you have, maybe in a class or, or online or something like that. So a simple basic definition of critical race theory, 
which would be a subset of critical theory, would be an academic discipline that attempts to understand race and racism primarily through the lens of power. That's what critical race theory does. How do we analyze race and racism through this lens of power? Power imbalances, power structures. That's what critical race theory, or CRT for short, does. And it's built on a number of assumptions. The assumption, number one, that society is divided into those who have power and those who do not, right? That's a fundamental assumption. Second, that that imbalance of power creates oppression. That's a fundamental assumption of this worldview. That if power is imbalanced, that automatically means or creates oppression. That's an assumption of this worldview. And there's a third assumption, which is that social justice requires liberating oppressed groups and redistributing power. So when they talk about justice, who's against justice? Is anybody against justice? Anybody think justice is a bad idea? No, justice is a biblical idea, right? But keep in mind, their assumption is that social justice requires liberating oppressed groups redistributing power. So there's a lot under the surface uh, that's meant by language of CRT. I, I want to just look at three assertions of CRT, three claims that CRT makes that whether or not you could have defined critical race theory, you've been exposed to all of this. I mean, once you see it, you can't unsee it. You're like, oh yeah, that's in all of our movies. That's in all of the songs. That's in the speech that that person made at the award ceremony. That's in my classroom. That's in politics. It's everywhere, right? So one of those things, the first assertion that I want to look at would be a changed definition of racism. This is a truth claim. CRT is bringing something to us and claiming that it's true, and it's changing the definition of racism. The old dictionary definition of racism, what our society, the assumption our society operated on for many years, was that racism is prejudice or discrimination against someone based on their race. Very simple definition. Looking down on someone, resenting them, mistreating them because of their race. That's prejudice or discrimination. That's the old school definition. But remember, CRT views everything through the lens of power. When you do that, it starts to change the definition. So CRT defines racism as racial prejudice plus institutional power. It brought a new, a new idea into this term of racism. That's why, according to CRT, minorities can be prejudiced, but not racist. How many of you have heard that claim that African Americans can't be racist? Well, this is why. Because they would claim that racism is prejudice plus institutional power. And because it is claimed certain minorities lack institutional power, therefore they cannot possibly be racist. So they've subtly changed the definition of racism. There's a second assertion that CRT makes. And that is that our entire society is permeated by racism. How many, many of you have heard that? Systemic racism, right? That all of society is permeated by racism. CRT claims racism is universal. Uh, that society itself is structured to actually disadvantage minorities and to preserve the status and influence and power of the oppressor group and their values. And because CRT believes that racism is universal and systemic, they believe that racism is always the problem. It's always the issue. So the question they want us to ask is not, did racism take place? Rather, they want us to ask the question, how did racism affect this situation? Because it's already a given. They believe that something or someone is racist because of imbalances of power and different privileges and things that are at play. So this is why even if you yourself are not committing any racial sins, maybe you don't harbor any prejudice towards anyone, maybe you've not discriminated against anyone, you've not mistreated anyone, nevertheless, CRT would claim that you are part of a system, if you're part of the majority group, in which you benefit from the structural racism. So if you're white, they would call this white privilege. If you're not white, they would say you've just internalized your oppression and you're playing the game to benefit yourself by reinforcing these racist structures. So it's a lose-lose situation. So no one is innocent according to CRT. Your options are either to admit that you're a racist, which shows that you're guilty, or to claim that you're not a racist, which is exactly the kind of thing a racist would do. So you're double guilty, right? So it's a lose-lose situation. 
that's the worldview of critical race theory, that everything is racist. It's universal. It permeates all society. They would claim it permeates the family. So things like interracial marriage or adoption become problematic, according to CRT. It permeates education. So math becomes racist, right? It permeates politics. It permeates the church. It permeates everything. Everything is said to be racist. There's a third assertion of CRT. And this, I think, is one of the most troubling and most dangerous. The third assertion of CRT is that lived experience is the source of truth and authority. That what people have been through, what's happened to them, what they have experienced and what they believe based on that experience, that that is something that we should allow to di dictate, determine what is true. Lived experience is the source of truth and authority. They claim that those who've experienced oppression of some sort, that it gives them access to a truth that no one else has. You can't possibly understand what I've been through, so you can't tell me what's right and wrong. Only if I've experienced these things, I'm in the position to tell you what is true, what is right, what is wrong. And what this produces is a scale of authority. The greater your status of grievance is against the majority culture, the greater moral authority you have. The more oppressed classes you belong to, the more you should be listened to, platformed, given influence. This is called intersectionality. You guys heard that term before, intersectionality. It comes from this assertion that lived experience is the source of truth and authority. So you have this scale. So a woman has more credibility to speak to issues of injustice than a man because women historically are understood, according to this system, to be oppressed, to lack the same institutional power that men have. But a black woman would have more moral authority than a white woman because she's not only a woman, she's also black. She's an ethnic minority. But then a lesbian black woman would have more credibility and authority than a straight black woman. Oh, and by the way, a trans black woman would have more moral credibility and authority than a lesbian black woman. And so it, there's this sliding scale of authority. And whoever checks off the most boxes, whoever belongs to the most oppressor, oppressed classes, they are to be platformed, listened to, given influence. That's how this works. It's called intersectionality. And so it's not science, it's not reason, it's not math, and it's definitely not scripture that dictates truth according to this worldview. It's rather the experience of the oppressed. That's held to be the highest authority. And these ideas have been pushed through popular books. Um, if any of you ever heard of or maybe even read Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, it's super popular. I have to admit, I tried to read it because I felt like I should, and I made it about three-quarters of the way through, and it was just painful. It was one of the most poorly written books, and I was like, this is popular right now? This is what everybody's reading? And it's not just the ideas. It was like, actually, it's not very well written. But anyway, these books have been, have been pushed. Uh, Ibram X. Kendi, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is another one that has promoted these kind of ideas. And these ideas have bled out through social media and our entertainment. Um, it's permeated higher and lower education. It's in our school systems. And sadly, these ideas, this worldview, has even crept into Christian circles. It's not just out there in the world. Some of this stuff has leaked into the church. There are some, both inside and outside the church, who would claim that CRT is actually compatible with Christianity, that it's maybe even a useful tool, that we can learn things from people that are pushing these ideas. And there's no shortage of those who write and teach and speak on Christian platforms who've actually drank some of that Kool-Aid. They've embraced some of those assumptions and assertions, which means that there's parachurch organizations, there's seminaries, there's publishers, there's campus ministries um, that have adopted some of these ideas and believe that we even need some of these ideas if we're going to promote social justice. They would even claim it's our Christian duty that and that Christianity and CRT are complementary. But biblically speaking, I'm convinced that CRT is actually incompatible with the Christian worldview. And I think it's even a threat to the foundational truths that we believe. And so I'd like to present four reasons why. Four reasons why CRT is incompatible with Christianity. Number one is that I'm convinced that CRT actually offers a competing worldview. It's two different worldviews that are antithetical to each other. So we can't have Christianity that adopts and embraces the assumptions and assertions of critical theory or critical race theory because it's a different worldview. 
Again, Tanner told us last night this compelling story, a story that comes directly from Scripture, a story about how everything got started, this story of a good God who created the heavens and the earth, created man in his own image, and called everything good. We have this story of creation that's followed by a tragedy, the fall, the fall of man, which results in separation from God, results in sin, results in death. But it didn't stop there. God made a promise, a promise to restore, a promise to redeem, a promise to bring blessing to the world through Abraham, through this nation Israel that would come from Abraham, specifically through this King David who was a prototypical, uh, a, a prototype of the rescuer who would come, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, God puts right everything that went wrong in the garden. So that the end of the story is one of consummation, one of restoration, where man is made right with God and we are made right with each other and the curse is undone and there's a new heaven and a new earth. That biblical story is the story that's the foundation for our worldview. That's where we find our identity. That's where we go to find the answers for what our problems really are and what the solutions really are, what our mission is, what part do we have to play in the story. Right? When what is our hope for the future? We find all the answers in that story. But listen, that story is replaced by a different story. In what I believe is a competing worldview of critical race theory. According to critical race theory, oppression is the real problem, not rebellion against God. According to critical race theory, the biggest problem is what people have done to people, not what all of us as a human race have done against God. So the problem is not original sin, something we're all born with. The problem is not the curse and what's gone wrong with the world. The problem has nothing to do with the enemy and his war of rebellion against God. They would say the real problem is oppression. They've redefined sin, redefined the problem. They would also claim that activism is the redeeming power, not Jesus. Where we look for hope is Christ and his message and his work. But critical race theory says the answer for the problem is not Jesus. It's you doing the work. It's you educating yourself. It's you being an advocate. It's you. It's you. It's you. It's fundamentally man-centered and legalistic. There's no good news in this story. Jesus isn't the answer. We are. And by the way, we can't ever fully fix the problem. <laughs> Likewise, CRT says that liberation from human oppression is the goal of all things. But according to the biblical worldview, it's the glory of God that is the goal of all things, not liberation from human oppression. It's the glory of God. It's the fulfilling of his plan. And by the way, the end goal that we're aiming for, restoration with God, reconciliation with God, and a renewed creation, that's not the goal of CRT. The goal of CRT is a different vision of utopia. And their vision of utopia is radical equity, radical equality in terms of distribution of power, which is very different than a kingdom, very different than a kingdom in which all power belongs to one who sits on the throne, who's worthy of glory and honor and power and wisdom and might and blessing, right? Those are two different visions of, of utopia. So there's a very different story that's being told by CRT. It's a different worldview. It's, and it's one with no good news. It's one with no gospel. Just a legalistic requirement to do penance and work for change and to push this impossible boulder up an eternal hill because, by the way, racism never really goes away. It just evolves and changes and adapts. So CRT says our efforts against racism are necessary, but they're ultimately impossible. And our only choice at the end of the day is just to find our place in the pecking order of the victims and the oppressed and the oppressors and just submit ourselves to the new social overlords, right? So there's no real joy, no peace, no hope in this worldview. So Christianity is incompatible with CRT because it's a competing worldview. It's a different story. There's a second reason why it's incompatible. Because CRT appeals to a different source of authority. It appeals to a different source of authority. So it's a different worldview that, number two, appeals to a different source of authority. We have a different epistemology. It's a big word that means the study of truth and our source of truth, how we know what's true and what's real. Again, CRT, remember, upholds lived experience as the arbiter of truth. CRT claims that any appeal to objectivity or evidence is really just trying to maintain or perpetuate oppression. 
CRT ignores objective truth, and everything is judged by experience. But the Bible rejects this kind of epistemology. Remember, the Bible gives us a different source of authority. Jesus prays to his Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's the standard. Jesus says, I am the way and the what? The truth. Jesus is the source of truth. Romans says, let God be true, though every man a liar. No matter what their experience, no matter what claims they make, God is the source of truth. Psalm 19 says that the law of the Lord is perfect, that it's whole, that it's complete, that it is without blemish, without fault. Listen, truth is not measured by experience. Truth is not measured by victim status. Truth is measured by its adherence to God's word, period. God's word is our source of truth. So whether a person is white or brown or black has no bearing on the truthfulness of truth. Whether or not you or I were ever born has no bearing on the truthfulness of truth. And by the way, our experience doesn't make us an infallible interpreter of our circumstances. We can get it wrong. And our experience doesn't make us an infallible interpreter of the scriptures either. So we have to be very, be very, very careful about where we locate authority. Obviously, we can learn from others, and we need to. Right? We all benefit from different perspectives, different experiences. That can be valuable. And it's valuable because no one person has a corner on the truth. No one has exclusive access. But make sure that we don't give up ground to this godly ideology. We need to make sure that we remember that truth is an objective reality. And that this truth is revealed in Christ and in his word. And that this truth is accessible to all of us by God's grace. So truth is not determined by experience. So CRT has, it's a competing worldview. It appeals to a different source of truth. There's a third reason why CRT is incompatible with the Christian worldview. And that's because it works with different definitions of sin and guilt and justice. CRT presents a different definition of sin, guilt, and justice. Listen, according to the Bible, sin is not simply the imbalance of power or privilege. It's not how the Bible defines sin. Sin is violating God's law. God's perfect law, which is a reflection of God's perfect character. So sin is rebellion against God. It's not simply the imbalance of power or privilege. Which means that guilt isn't just belonging to a certain group. It's not how the Bible defines guilt. Guilt is the result of violating God's law and rebelling against his perfect character, his authority. That's what guilt is. Justice, according to the Bible, is not radical equality, or what some have called equality of outcome. That's not God's definition of justice. God's definition of justice is equality of opportunity. It's equal weights and measures. It's living according to the perfect standard of God's law and God's truth. That's the Bible's definition of justice. When we study scripture, what we learn is that God holds individuals accountable for their own sins. There's a number of texts we could go to, especially in the Old Testament, where sons are not to be put to death for the sins of their fathers. Individuals are held accountable. It says that the soul who sins in Ezekiel shall die. That's God's justice. He holds individuals accountable for their sin, and he does so with perfect justice. Therefore, to feel subjective guilt, to feel guilty about sins that we have not personally committed, sins we've not participated in, that's actually departing from God's standard. If we try to repent for sins that we've not personally committed, if we try to repent for sins we've not participated in, that is unbiblical. Listen, you can't confess sins that you haven't committed. That's not how it works. You can't receive forgiveness for sins that you have not committed. And you can't forsake behavior. You can't, that's part of what repentance is, right? Turning away from sin. You can't forsake behavior that you've never participated in. So these biblical ideas of guilt and sin and repentance is defined differently than the way CRT defines it. Look, we have plenty of our own sins to repent of without bearing the guilt for other people's sins. I'm very thankful for that. 
God is perfectly just, and it's his character, his standard of justice that must shape our sense of justice. So if our idea of justice is different than God's, who needs to change? Who needs to shift? It's us. We're the ones that need to conform to his standard, and it's so important that we get this right. Proverbs 17:15 is a really important text along these lines that I think is, if I was going to bring one verse that I was going to use to confront the system of critical race theory, it might be this verse. Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. That's pretty powerful. Proverbs tell us that it's just as wicked to falsely condemn someone for being racist, to falsely accuse them when they're not racist, that's just as wicked as defending actual racism. Imagine what would change in our society if we started being sensitive to that verse. That it's just as wicked to condemn the righteous as it is to pardon the wicked. It's an abomination. That means God hates that. God hates it when people are called racist when they're not. And God hates it when behaviors that are racist are defended. God hates both of those things. So scripture has a different definition of sin, a different definition of justice, a different definition of repentance than critical race theory. They're not compatible. There's a fourth reason why CRT and the biblical worldview are not compatible. Fourth, scripture affirms an unequal distribution of power. Remember, that's one of those fundamental assumptions is that an imbalance of power is immoral and creates oppression. That's one of the assumptions of CRT. Well, Scripture actually affirms an unequal distribution of power. Ephesians 6.1 says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord. You know what that is? That's an unequal distribution of power and authority. In my house, I have four children. They don't have the same power and authority that I do. They have to do what I say. I make the rules. And you know what? That actually glorifies God. That's his design. That's how it's supposed to be. My home is not this radically egalitarian system where everybody equally participates in making the rules. That would be a horrible idea if my 11-year-old was allowed to help dictate the direction of our home. He's only 11, okay? And that's actually okay that there's this imbalance of power. It's the same thing in a marriage. Though wives and husbands are radically equal in terms of their value and dignity and their standing before God in Christ, at the same time, there's an unequal distribution of authority. God gives the responsibility of headship to husbands while they are to lay down their lives to their wives there's sacrifice for them to love them selflessly. At the end of the day, they're also supposed to lead. They're given the authority to chart the direction for their home. That's a slightly unequal distribution of authority. We could go on. Church members are to obey their elders, Hebrews 13. Citizens are to obey their government, Romans 13. God's system for the world is one of structure where there's different delegations of authority and power. And to say that that is unjust is to say that God is unjust. Really, if you zoom out and look at the universe itself, the universe is not arranged to uphold equity as the highest good. I mean, think about it. Who has all the power? It's God, right? There is an unequal distribution of power between the creator and the creation. God has all the power. God has all truth. God has all authority. And we are called to submit to him. And from the standpoint of critical race theory, this is unacceptable. But from the Bible standpoint, this is just reality. This is the way it is. This is God's world. Me and you just live in it, right? Like that's how things are. So CRT, when it uses words like injustice, ends up condemning things that God does not condemn. Things like economic disparities. Things like unequal representation. Those things are not inherently wrong. And the Bible affirms as good things that CRT would condemn, like equal weights and measures. CRT wants to stack the deck, wants to ensure that there's radical equality. And that's why some people of Asian descent right now are being denied access to Ivy League schools because they're trying to artificially balance everything out. They're not using equal weights and measures. CRT says that that's justice. The Bible says that's injustice, right? We have different definitions of these things. So because of conflicting worldviews, because we have conflicting sources of authority, 
because we have conflicting standards of justice and sin and different views on the distribution of power. If we try to combine CRT and Christianity, one of them is going to eventually erode the other. They're not compatible. They cannot coexist for very long, which means, very sadly, that those individuals or those organizations that embrace this secular ideology are in danger of compromising their most basic Christian convictions. CRT is like acid to the biblical worldview. And the biblical worldview is a boulder that rolls over and crushes all the assumptions and assertions of critical race theory. So we need to choose wisely. I could give several different examples. I had quotes from some of these books, but I'm going to skip over those for the sake of time. But I'll just say this, that as you dig more into what CRT is actually aimed at accomplishing, you'll find they're not actually interested in, in securing um, justice according to the Bible's demands. They're actually interested in subverting and undermining the entire structure of God's moral system. Redefining the family, redefining sexuality and gender, all of it is on the table. All of it is under fire. Again, I'm not going to read all those for the sake of time, but there is an agenda with CRT that is in direct rebellion against God, direct rebellion against his created order, direct rebellion against his moral law. So Christians can't be submitted to the lordship of Christ and simultaneously march with those that oppose his rule. It, it can't work. So I'm firmly convinced that CRT and biblical Christianity are not compatible. They're mutually exclusive. But I want to urge you this morning not just to reject CRT because it's a competing worldview that's incompatible with the gospel. I also want to encourage you today to reject those assumptions and assertions of CRT because we actually have a better way. We actually have something better, objectively better, because CRT only makes things worse. I don't know if you've noticed what's gone on in our world over the last number of years, but CRT doesn't bring healing. It doesn't fix anything. It only breathes suspicion and resentment and bitterness. And it sows division. It makes things worse. It does not and cannot produce unity or bring about true justice. But we as Christians, with our worldview, we actually have a better way. The Christian worldview offers a better definition of race, number one. A better definition of race. It's true that our world consists of a broad diversity of cultures, a broad diversity of ethnicities, physical traits. We can even look around the room here and see that we don't all look the same. And that's a good thing. All of that reflects God's glory. He created humanity with a capacity for this radical diversity, and that honors him. It pleases him. And we often use the word race to describe that diversity, right? But biblically speaking, if we want to get technical, there's only one race. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Flip over to Acts 17, verse 26. Here's a key text that gives us a better biblical definition of race. If we're going to understand our group identity, what group we belong to, this is the passage we should go to. This is where we should find our identity. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. says that he, referring to God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In this sermon, Paul says that God made from one man, literally from one blood. If you look at the, the Greek word that's translated man, I'm, I'm preaching from the ESV this morning. It's that he made from one blood. Every nation, and the word nation here is ethnos, where we get our word ethnicity or ethnic. It's the same root there. God made from one blood, one man, every ethnicity to live on all the face of the earth. That's the group identity that we belong to. There is one race, the human race. And that's not a slogan. That's from the Bible. Okay. So Christians must reject this evolutionary concept that there's different races of human beings. Those that reject the biblical worldview would explain our differences by pointing to, to the process of evolution, saying we have different family tree, 
But biblically speaking, the family tree goes all, all the way back to one man, to Adam. We have the same blood. We are of one race. So Christians must reject this evolutionary concept. Scripture teaches we're descended from one man, that we are all of us made in God's image, male and female, no matter what color, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what culture. All of us are made in the image of God. All of us possess inherent dignity and worth before God because we bear his image. And guess what? All of us are also equally fallen. We are equally sinful because we're all related to Adam. We inherit it from him. And all of us are equally in need of salvation. There's no ethnicity, there's no culture that is more or less in need of salvation. And we are all equally invited to come to the cross and experience the saving grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ. The gospel is open to all. So there's this radical equality in the Christian worldview that says we're not these different groups that have evolved from different streams and different races. It's one race. We bear God's image. We're all equally fallen, and we're all invited to come to God through Christ. So we may have different ethnic features. We may have different languages, different cultures. And that diversity is something that shows the creativity and the diversity of God. It glorifies him. But biblically speaking, there is one race. The Christian worldview offers a better way. Our world needs to know that there's only one race. And that we are all, and that these things are the basis of our equality and our unity. Secondly, the Bible gives us a better definition of racism. Right? Remember, the CRT offers this corrupted view of racism. That it's prejudice plus institutional power. But that's actually too weak. That doesn't go far enough. The biblical definition of racism is far better. When we reject the world's definition of racism, that doesn't mean that we're not against racism, okay? Even though we may be accused of that, if you push back against CRT, you'll be called a racist. People will say you don't care about racism. But actually, we have a strong condemnation of true racism in the Bible, and we should repudiate racism, real racism, without hesitation, because rightly understood, racism is a sin is a violation of God's law. It is concrete, it is objective, and it must be condemned. Racism violates the clear commands of Scripture. Scripture condemns racial pride. Scripture condemns a feeling of superiority. Proverbs 6.16 says there's six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, and the first one on the list is haughty eyes. Looking down on other people, thinking you're better than them. Racial superiority Looking down on others is an abomination to God. He hates that. Scripture condemns racial animosity, malice, and hatred. Colossians 3.8 says, You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. There's no room for that in the Christian worldview. Scripture condemns judgmentalism. When you believe the worst about someone, you make, when you make assumptions about their character or their intentions, when you judge them by their appearance, the Bible says that's sin. John 7, 24 says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We don't evaluate people by how they look. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So the Bible condemns judging people by their appearance. Scripture also condemns bitterness and resentment. Resentment towards any group of people for any reason is sin. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. There's no room for bitterness or resentment in God's word. Scripture also condemns preferential treatment. Scripture condemns bias. James 2.1 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Racism is the sin of partiality. And the Bible condemns that. The Bible forbids that. And we could go on and on and on. This is just a sampling. The Bible explicitly condemns such sinful behavior at every turn. God's law exposes it and rebukes it and commands us to repent and forsake it. So hear me loud and clear. There should be no tolerance in the church or in our own hearts for such sinful attitudes or behaviors. That's the Bible's definition of racism. And it's better because it's true. But racism is not just a violation of biblical commands. Racism is actually incompatible with the very shape and substance of the biblical story. I mean, think about it. Doesn't racism resist the very way that the biblical story starts? 
Racial superiority ignores the doctrine of creation, that we are all made in the image of God. James brings that, that truth to bear in James chapter 3, verse 9. He says, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. He says, this story, our understanding of who we are, where we came from, that should shape how we treat each other. Racial superiority ignores the doctrine of creation, and it contradicts the very character of God. The character of God is revealed in his word. It's revealed in his plan. Tanner told us last night about this promise to bring blessing to all the nations through Abraham. There was a prophet who didn't like that plan. His name was Jonah. He didn't want the Ninevites to experience that blessing, but God did. God sent him to preach, and when he didn't want to go, he got on a ship and left. God hurled this massive storm, and Jonah said, it's my fault, just kill me. So they hurl him into the water, and then this big fish comes and swallows Jonah, spits him out on the beach, and says, no, I want you to go preach the gospel, preach good news to the Ninevites. Jonah has a bad attitude about that, and Jonah's short book ends this way. God rebukes Jonah. He says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? God says, look, I have compassion on these people. Do you have a problem with that? Like the very character of God is antithetical to an attitude of racial superiority. Racial superiority violates the command of Christ. I mean, think about the second greatest commandment. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, right? There it is. There's the command of Christ. And when someone asks, well, who's my neighbor? He tells a story about a Samaritan and a Jew. He points to this, this opportunity to cross ethnic and cultural boundaries to overcome the latent resentments and hostilities between these two groups. That's his example of what it looks like to love your neighbor. Racial superiority, if it's in the church, is actually denial of the gospel. Christ died for Jews and Gentiles, and we're united with Christ through faith, and therefore we're united with each other. Colossians 3.11 says, Here in the church, among those who believe the gospel, there's no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Christ is all and in all. So racial superiority denies the gospel. And it really opposes God's plan for redemption. We get all the way to the end of this story. You get to Revelation chapter 7. Do you know what we find? We find this amazing scene where there's a massive multitude from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Collectively, in their diversity, worshiping in radical unity the lamb who was slain. Worshiping Christ. That's where all of history is headed. And an attitude of racial resentment or superiority is just out of line with this entire story. So when we understand racism like this, when we define it better according to Scripture and see that it violates the commands of Scripture, and it's even antithetical to the very storyline of Scripture, when we define it that way, what we learn is that racism is not a white problem or a white phenomenon. It's simply an expression of our sin nature. And it can be found in every culture, can be found in every century. Guess what? The Bible teaches that all of us are sinners. That's the real systemic problem, right? In every sense of the word, sin is the systemic problem, and we all have it. So we need to reject the world's definitions and instead understand this issue in light of God's word. We have a better definition of racism. And then third, not only do we have a better definition of race and a better definition of racism, but third, the gospel gives us a better solution for racism. The gospel gives us a better answer to the problem. If racism is really a sin issue, guess what? We have the medicine for that, don't we? We have an answer for sin. We know the gospel. The solution for racism is not disrupting the balance of power. The solution for racism is repentance from sin and faith in Christ. You see, CRT poses a problem that can never truly be solved. According to CRT, you can never actually be forgiven or set free. You can never actually fix the problem. All you can do is do the work forever. But in the gospel, there's hope. There's hope both for the oppressors and there's hope for the oppressed in the gospel. There's hope for those that are guilty of hate. And there's also hope and comfort for those who have been hated. There is both forgiveness and perfect love offered to us at the cross. And as people's hearts are transformed by the gospel, what happens is real change. Not the kind of change that we work for through activism, but the kind of change that God produces through a transformed heart, through the power of the Holy Spirit. When the gospel takes root, 
Love becomes the defining characteristic for God's people. Humility becomes the supreme virtue, not pride or superiority, which means that the church becomes salt and light. We become a city on a hill. We're able to show the world in the church what racial harmony can look like as we are united in Christ. We are members of the same family because of the gospel. We are members, parts of the same body because of the gospel. We are living stones being built up into a spiritual temple. Like we're we're parts of the same building because of the gospel. We are sheep in the same flock. We have one shepherd who has one flock. We're a community that's marked by forgiveness and humility and love and mutual honor and unity. At least we should be. That's where the gospel leads us. The gospel means we have reconciliation with God, but also reconciliation with each other. We have the answer that the world needs. We have a better way, which means that it's the ministry of the gospel and only the ministry of the gospel that actually has the power to heal racial conflict in our world. So we've gotten really to one of Tanner's application points from last night. We need to share the gospel, right? We need to share our worldview. We need to share the true truth, God's word, with those who need it. I've probably gone long, and there's a lot more we can say, but I'm going to stop at this point and wrap up. Maybe that's raised some questions we can talk about later, but I'm going to pray and then hand it over to Tanner. Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful um, that you have made a way to solve our deep problem. And it's even worse than imbalances of power and privilege. Our problem is that we've rebelled against you and we carry the virus of sin in our hearts. We thank you for your work on the cross and what you've done to reconcile us to God and what you've also done in terms of bringing us together in the church. I pray that we as believers would be able to show the world a better way that when they gaze on the church, they would, say, they would see uh, harmony and unity in Christ. Pray that they would see a people who celebrate and affirm your definitions of justice your definitions uh, of, of unity. Uh, I pray that we would be able to share good news with people and show them what it looks like to live a life that's been transformed by the gospel. I pray that you would uh, grant discernment and wisdom to these students, these young adults, as they live in a world that is swirling with all of these godless ideologies, these worldly philosophies. I pray that you would inoculate them against error and that as they lay hold of the truth, they would be able to resist these lies Pray that their thinking would be shaped by your word, that they would have a biblical worldview that would equip them to glorify you and serve you in this world. Amen.